And they said, well, if we put up 75 each, that means you don't have to put in any money. And I said, you're right, but look at the numbers. I said, we could, we could really do pretty well on this. And I said, you're right. I mean, I found the deal. I put it together. I lined up the financing because, you know, the guy's going to carry a note. And I told them that if they do this, they would get their money back before I ever saw a dime out of the project. And they said, sounds fair. So we bought it together. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we welcome Glenn Gonzalez to the show, CEO and co-founder of Austin-based Obsidian Capital. Glenn has over 30 years of real estate experience, a journey that began as a maintenance man and has led to ownership of over 4,500 apartment units throughout his investment career. Prior to founding Obsidian, Glenn spent many years working in multifamily and commercial property management with companies such as Equity Residential, Evergreen Management Group, Glacier Management, as well as Pacific Property Company, a value-add investment firm. This year, Glenn published his first book, From Maintenance Man to Millionaire, a fantastic read that we discuss in today's show. We also discuss the three things Glenn looks for in a multifamily project to identify opportunity, how he has been able to build equity in projects while having zero dollars in the bank, and how to find opportunities in a world that has been shaken by COVID-19. It was a pleasure and honor having Glenn on today's show. Thank you for tuning in to XN State. Without further ado, here is today's guest, Glenn Gonzalez. Welcome to the show, Glenn. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jorge. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be part of your show, and I'm looking forward to visiting with you today. I'm equally excited, and I know I have a lot of questions and a lot of stuff that I want to cover now that we have you here. So why don't we get right into it by hearing a little bit about your background and your journey in real estate and what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jorge. I've been in the industry about 30 years, and I started off in the industry while I was going to college, actually. And I started off as a maintenance man. So the apartments that we were living at, um, my wife at that time, she was got a job as a leasing consultant. And she said, hey, uh, they're really behind on the maintenance. Do you want to come and, and help them a little bit? And at the time, I was, a, I was a waiter while I was going to college. I was a server for the Marriott. And uh, I said, sure, I'll come help. Yeah, it was really cold. It was really hard. I saw the leasing agent, the manager. They're sitting in the office. They're they're talking on the phone and leasing apartments and taking people on tours. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, it's cold out here and this is hard work. I'd rather be doing what they're doing and talking on the phone and showing apartments. So one time the regional manager stopped and said, uh, I, I stopped the regional and said, hey, I want to be a manager someday. <laughs> she said, Aren't you the maintenance guy? I'm like, yeah, I'm the maintenance guy. So anyway, long story short, I kind of got offered an opportunity to go and be a property manager after that. And I've been in property management for 30 years, but I came up through the ranks. I was a manager, then I was a regional manager. I grew with the company to become a director of operations. And then I left and went to a bigger company, a REIT, a real estate investment trust, and was a, a big regional with them for a while and got lots of experience. And then later switched off the property management side and went to the ownership side and got hired as an asset manager to oversee all these value add projects. Uh, the company was based out of Palo Alto, California, 
but I lived in the Pacific Northwest up in Seattle. And so I really got to see things from an owner's perspective, even though I wasn't the owner, I was an employee of the company, but it sure helped me gain a lot of experience. And then after I moved to Texas, I got into property management again, this time kind of as the president of the management company and also part owner. And that really opened a lot of doors for me as well and got really good at property management. And all that kind of led up to someday owning my own apartment complex. And then once I started buying my own apartment complexes, I grew the portfolio to about 4,500 units. And then we also had a property management company that I also owned and was the CEO of. And we managed about 6,000 units. So 4,500 were ours and 2,000 belonged to, to other owners that I didn't have any interest in. So, wow. I mean, it's been a journey, Jorge. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it seems to have been a very natural progression from property management to ownership in the sense that you already knew the business from the inside out. But I'm sure it was a challenge in terms of how you make the leap from property manager, I mean, originally from maintenance and then to property management and then to ownership of the of the assets ultimately. Yeah. How did, can you tell us a little bit about how that went about? Jorge, I, I, I shared a bit of this in my book, you know, the, the uh-huh. Maintenance Man Millionaire book. Yeah, tell and, us about it. Tell us about it. Well, there's a story in there where I had the opportunity to, to kind of serve because I was donating my time to the Apartment Association. And I had a mentor. His name is John Gibson. And John was also on the board of directors for the Apartment Association. And I knew he was really smart. He owned a lot of apartments. And he knew me from the operational side. I was an operator and he was an owner. And there were a lot of people in the room, but our personalities just really got along. And so I was looking at a, a deal in Tacoma and I said, hey, John, will you look at this and see, give me your opinion, tell me if it's a good deal. And he looked at the numbers and he said, I think it's an okay deal. Like an okay deal. Uh, should I buy it? And then he said to me, Glenn, I've got a better deal for you. I'm like you do. And he told me about a 44-unit deal that he owned in a little town called Puyallup, Washington. And I went and looked at it. He said, I'll sell it to you. He's like, I'll even sell it to you on contract if you want to buy it. Like, you'll be the bank? He's like, yes. I'm what like, do you mean by selling it to you on contract? He, he acted as the bank. So I didn't have to go get a new loan. He carried the note back. Okay. So I'm like, well, that'd be great. So I went and looked at it. And... Sure enough, it wasn't managed very well. There was lots of opportunities to fix all the problems. And he said, if, if you come up with $150,000, I'll carry a note back and, and you could buy this apartment community from me. So if you think about it, Jorge, that was 15 years ago, something like mm-hmm. that. And $150,000 to a guy that had a W-2. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I didn't have $150,000 in my checking account. Mm-hmm. But I knew there was a great opportunity to make some money on this small 44-unit deal. And this is something your, your investor or your listeners might be facing themselves. Like, how do I buy my first deal? Well, that was my very first deal. And I went to my boss and I went to a vendor, a guy that worked in the industry. And we were all kind of friends. And I said, do you guys want to go in on this with me? We have to come up with $150,000. I said, we could be equal partners, a third, a third, a third, all three of us. And they said, that sounds great. I said, but you each have to put up $75,000 each. And they said, well, if we put up 75 each, that means you don't have to put in any money. And I said, you're right, but look at the numbers. I said, we could, we could really do pretty well on this. And I said, you're right. I mean, I found the deal. I put it together. 
I lined up the financing because, you know, the guy's going to carry a note. And I told them that if they do this, they would get their money back before I ever saw a dime out of the project. And they said, sounds fair. So we bought it together. We raised $150,000. We formed a little LLC in a partnership. And then we bought and fixed up this little apartment complex and managed the heck out of it until about a year and a half later, we sold it for about a million dollars more than we paid for it. So if you think about that, for $150,000 down to make a million bucks that we could divide amongst the three of us, mm-hmm. that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. It was a big, big deal. All three of the investors, including you and the other two who put up $75,000 each, they also did very well. Yes, sir. They and all did, did you, in, in that case, did you take care of most of the active operations of the investment? Yeah, we did. Yeah, I did. And, and my boss... So the other one was my boss, right? She was very smart. She was smarter than I was. And so when I, when I showed her the deal and she was also somewhat involved too. So we all collectively worked together and Scott was the other investor. He was the vendor. He does power washing and all this other Mm -hmm. type of cleaning down there in Washington and gutter cleaning and power washing buildings and stuff. He rolled up his sleeves and he jumped in and he helped. So we had a lot of sweat equity in the deal. Okay, We, you know, the budget was thin, but the goal was to reduce expenses and push the income. And that's exactly what we did. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Uh, yeah, that's a very great, very inspiring story. As you mentioned, it's in your book, From Maintenance yeah. Man to Millionaire. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Did it? How long ago did it come out? It was one of my goals in 2019 to get that book finished. And it took me right to the very end. And when it was launched on Amazon, it was one of Amazon's bestsellers for wow. new releases. So in three different categories. So I was pretty excited about that too. And people have been purchasing in it, purchasing the, the book. And it just tells my story, my successes mm-hmm. and my failures. And after I shared you that experience that I had on that small apartment complex uh, that we bought, there was also a failure associated with that. When we sold it for a million dollar profit on paper, we showed a million dollar profit, but really we carried a note back to the guy that bought it. He wanted to borrow money from us, just like the guys sold it to me. Mm-hmm. So we carried a note back for about a half a million dollars. We put the other half a million dollars in our pocket, which is good, but we paid taxes on the full million. And that was a, a mistake, two mistakes, the taxes and also the carrying the note back. But the guy that bought it from us actually went into default and the note we carried back to him, he defaulted on that. And the value started going down because he didn't manage it nearly as well as we did. So, which brings me to another story. <laughs> I called a friend that was introduced. I said, hey, this thing is going into default. Do you want to buy the note from the bank before it forecloses? He buys the note and for 60 or 70 cents on the dollar. I don't remember off the top of my head, but he bought it at a discount. And mm-hmm. then when the borrower refinanced, he actually got paid 100% of the note. So whatever okay. he bought it as, as a discount, he made a 30% profit plus default interest. But of course, so, he took the risk of having to carry the note. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he made a lot of money. Well, then his name is Ed. Ed and I became fast friends after that because he's like, that was a good deal, Glenn. Thank you very much. Appreciate the introduction. And Ed and I got to be friends for years. And one day, and Ed was 70 years old back then. And I said, Ed, when, when you get ready to retire. You know, he's already 70. When you get ready to retire, why don't you call me? Maybe I'll buy your management company from you. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'm never going to retire, but okay, I'll keep <laughs> that in mind. And sure enough, he never retired. But when he turned 80 or 81, he did call me 
And he said, Glenn, I think things have changed in my personal life. And I think I'm ready to sell my management company. And at this point, Jorge, I had so much experience in property management. Last thing I want to do is buy somebody else's management company because frankly, I could start my own. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'll buy your management company. But first, I'd like you to sell me your eight apartment complexes that you own up in Dallas, Fort Worth. And if you sell me those eight, then yes, I'll buy your management company. And he's like, deal. You know, we shook on it. And it took me a long time to close on those eight apartment complexes. I think he let us close on them one at a time over six months or something, six or seven months. But Jorge, do you remember that story when I said I had to raise $150,000 for that first apartment deal? Mm -hmm. But now I had to raise $20 million to buy these apartments from him. It was like 1,500 units. It was big. And how much of that did you have in your bank? None. You know, I mean, it's like the same boat I was last time. It's like, I don't have that kind of money. So started working the phones and started raising money from investors. The real estate hustle, as you call it in your book. Yes. Yeah. I just went for it. And you know what? A lot of people told me no, but then a lot of people said yes. And um, before you know it, I raised enough money, but the returns were so great to the investors. They started bragging about it to their friends. And then it became easier and easier to buy more and more of those deals. Well, we've eventually got them all closed and we renovated them. And we bought those probably in 2016, 2017, sold them all in 2019 and 2018. So we'd only owned them a couple of years. Those investors, Jorge, were getting anywhere from 25 on the low end, 25% IRR, all the way up to an 80% IRR wow. on some of these deals. I mean, they were, they were fantastic deals. Now, a couple of things happened. I bought at the right time and from the right guy due to a relationship. And then I sold it kind yeah, of top of them. Probably sold it at the right time from what we see going yeah. on in the market right now. Yeah, and things are much different today. Now you got to look for things that are really broken or distressed and then you still buy them, you know, mm -hmm. or create your own value. So, so, so yeah. you talk in your, in your book a lot about your experience as a property manager and that's sort of where the most of your experience is from and where you have developed that sensibility that you have towards being able to look at an apartment building and seeing where the inefficiencies are and how you can increase the value of that asset. So, so what are some of the valuable things that you've learned in your experience that you yeah. look for in, in a property to that, that yeah. you think that you can improve? Yeah, I've kind of narrowed it down to uh, three things, really, that if, if you can find apartments that have one or one of these three, you'll probably mm -hmm. make some money. Okay. If you find one of all three, you'll make a lot of money. But if the rents are below market, you could buy it and easily raise rents, right? So if, if the average rent is $1,000 and this owner didn't want turnover, he didn't want to raise rent, and he's only got them rented at $750, that's almost a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. you know, then there's others that are like totally mismanaged, where the property has a bad reputation, they can't lease apartments, there's no made-ready product, you know, the units aren't ready. If you can get them you know, mismanaged, then that's another goldmine. Sometimes those are those both occur, right? Mm -hmm. Property, and then the third thing is things that are like really just deferred maintenance or distressed with you know people not investing the money to fix it up, and then it becomes overwhelming project to some owners where they're like, I don't even know where to begin. The roof is failing, the parking lot's failing, the siding is failing, and all those items can be fixed with money. Mm -hmm. So generally, you get a big discount on really deferred maintenance properties, and, and you can make a lot of money on fixing any one of those three things, the rents, the mismanagement, or deferred. Okay. 
And that's been typical for many, many years. Well, in 2019 and 2018, the prices started going up and up so high that those and everybody was picking over these deals that the prices were going so high that it you would actually have to find those that were mismanaged and low rent and deferred and do all three of those fixes just to make your money. Okay. So is that then, something that you've been seeing in the last few years? But that yeah. so you think it used to be easier to find deals when you first started buying apartments? Uh, few. Yeah. Yeah. Those days are kind of gone, right? Mm-hmm. So they will come again. But in 2019, the the prices were going so high and the cap rates were going so low that the values, the only way to make things work on those properties, Jorge, was to buy them and really renovate the units and push the rents two to $300. Well, with the economy tapping off, I mean, you can only push your rents so high. Mm -hmm. And if salaries and wages don't keep up at the same rate and everybody's raising the rents, eventually you're going to run out of people that can afford a $200 rent increase. And I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of apartments all raising their rents at the same time. And, you know, that's a $200 rent increase. Well, when people get a raise in pay, they're getting a dollar more an hour and they really, they can't afford that. So they're going to move. Right. So there's lots of variables that have happened to our economy mm-hmm. with COVID-19, everything got turned upside down. Mm-hmm. All of those variables have all just drastically changed. So, so in, in light of the things that you had been seeing in 2019, where it had been, the economy is sort of tapered off and it wasn't easy to find deals. How, how do you shift in that kind of economy in, in order to find opportunities? Let me give you one example that we did just kind of here in Austin, Texas. You know, we were looking at opportunities to buy apartments and, and call it stuff that was built in the 1980s, mm-hmm. you know, mid 80s, early 90s. People were buying and paying $140,000 a unit for these and trying to fix them up and raising the rent. And I had the opportunity to buy a piece of dirt that was already zoned multifamily and get it built, which I'm going to start here in the next month or two. We could build a brand new apartment complex less than what other people were selling their existing old eighties product for. Mm -hmm. So now I didn't have to worry about pushing values up on a renovated apartment. Now I've created my own value, bought Mm -hmm. the dirt, building it at cost because I partnered with a a construction company. They're going to build it for cost and we are building it with no bells and whistles. So there's no leasing office or swimming pool. It's only 50 units. It has what everybody wants, two bedroom, two baths and some garages. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, we're we're renting those out for two hundred dollars less than what all the other apartments are renting for that have all the bells and whistles. So I really come up with a strategy to come up with a I'm gonna it's new construction, but call it Class B new construction. Mm-hmm. I don't have to compete with all the Class A new construction that are that are coming up around Austin and in the North Austin area. So you have to be very strategic. Oh, and the other thing is we're not getting any construction debt. I figured. Mm-hmm. I deal with a bank when I could raise money from investors, might as well, if a bank's going to charge an interest reserve, loan origination fee, appraisals, draw fees, you might as well take all that money that you would have given to a bank and just give it to the investors, right? Because yeah. they'll be happy with it. And then you have no debt on this deal. So when it's all built, we're going to own it free and clear. That's a different strategy too, because a lot of mm-hmm. people have been using leverage and debt. So there's lots of variables that you could change your strategy based on the economy mm-hmm. still win. So to summarize, you're shifting from acquisition to new development because of the cost that you can build per unit is already similar to a, but a 
the price that you would pay for a unit for a 1980s product or from a very old product. That's exactly right. And I want to highlight some of the things that you're doing to keep costs low. So I think they're really interesting. And I think more people are going to start looking at these kinds of alternatives because, as you mentioned, the housing costs across the country have really skyrocketed in the last decade. And the wages and people's salaries haven't really increased at the same rate. So mm-hmm. we, we're seeing the affordable crisis that people talk about. And the things that you're doing, for example, you said you partnered with a construction company in order to build it at cost because now they share the profit. So that's that's yeah. how that's pretty much how you're paying them. It's by they haven't they have actually have an incentive to build it at a lower cost per unit because he's going to be a part owner. Mm-hmm. He gets to participate in that for years to come. Yeah, that's very yeah. interesting. So that was the one of the things. The other is you're doing it with well, first of all, the one that I really thought was interesting is you're not building pretty much any amenities. The right. the fancy fitness center and and the fancy pool and those kinds of things that the new class A apartments really try to sell. You're skipping because you're seeing that your tenants, because they're having such a hard time finding affordable places to rent, you're going to tell them you're you're not going to have a gym or a pool, but you're going to be paying $200 less than what you would pay in a different building and they're going to like it. And then the third thing that you're doing is you're skipping the the financing and that allows you to save some costs there. And yeah, I think it's a very interesting way that you you set it up with the ultimate intention to build it for as low cost as you could. Yeah. And Jorge, I could not have predicted this, but now some of those subcontractors that were very, very busy building for all these other developers and stuff, it's kind of slowed down because a lot of people have slowed in the economy or not working at all. So now they're coming back and rebidding our own project for less expensive mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. So my construction costs are actually going down a little bit because labor costs have come down a little bit and people want to work and then material and all the other stuff, you know, have all contributed to that as well. So, oh, wow. So how did you venture into ground up development? This is your, your first development ground up because because so far your, your experience had been in acquisitions for the most part, right? Yeah. I mean, I've dabbled in development in the past in my career. I built a subdivision, actually named the street after my son and sold mm. all the lots, you know, to builders and stuff. But, you know, I came into this opportunity. I was introduced to somebody that was selling the land and he did not want to build the apartments on it because he's, you know, he's a cowboy, but it was zoned multifamily. I mean, the city zoned it for him, and but he didn't want to build. So he sold it, and we did all the development, engineering, architectural stuff on our dime mm-hmm. and got it through the city. So, and you haven't yeah, really just, faced yeah. any big challenges there in terms of new development. Mm-hmm. We actually hosted David, your partner, David Tupin, yeah, here yeah. on the yeah. podcast a few weeks ago, and we talked more into detail into, into the development aspect of the deal. Yeah. Very interesting. And that's where it is anywhere is Jorge is when you're entrepreneurs and you're in the business, you've got to find a way to create the value, right? So in the old days, um, I call it the old days. It wasn't that long ago. Lots of value add, lots Mm -hmm. of renovating units and fixing up the outside and lipstick. But then when the, when that I felt got to the top, we started looking at development opportunities, you know, so you just got to be creative and kind of get Mm -hmm. out in front of the curve uh, if you can. Yeah. Um, Hard to do. It's very hard. 
you know, I lived through the 2008, 2009 crisis. Back, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about that in your, in your book. I did. Yeah. And I learned some very, very valuable, but hard lessons. If mm-hmm. you remember, I lost a yeah. lot of money and I just, you know, didn't pay attention. You know, I thought everything's peachy keen and everything doesn't last forever. <laughs> I learned back then. Yeah. So I've actually been preparing for this time for mm-hmm. a long time. You know, for the last five years, I've been preparing for this very thing to occur. And how have you been preparing differently than in 06 and 07? So on a personal note, you know, back in 06 and 07, I made a very good salary, but I also financed my house, my cars. I had a boat. I had, you know, dirt bikes and a motorhome. I mean, I had a lot of things that they were all financed. Well, when, when the economy crashed in real estate in 2008, 2009, I was one of those people that got laid off my job. So I went to having a nice paycheck to having no paycheck. And of course, I wasn't smart enough back then to even have a savings account. So I didn't really have a savings account either. So it got really critical very fast. And as a matter of fact, the value on my home that I was living in, my primary residence, it went down 30% in value, as did all of the other. I had rental homes and they went down. So in my book, I explain I was living high on the hog. I financed everything and had no savings account. And the economy tanked and the real estate tanked. And I lost those properties on short sales. And then my primary resident got foreclosed on. Wow. I didn't have a paycheck. So anyway, now I live much differently today. You know, I live a conservative life. My house is not a multi-million dollar home, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I could probably afford, but I don't. It's paid for it. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like Warren Buffett, right? He's living <laughs> in the same house. is <laughs> when when he started his business and stuff. So I don't know. And my cars, I I get to the point where if I can't pay cash for a car, then I probably can't afford it. So all my cars are paid for. So now that I'm in crisis mode here, I'm not too worried because I don't have any debt. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I've been preparing for that for a long time. Not everybody's in that situation, Mm -hmm. but I've learned from my past mistakes that I don't ever want to be in that position again, like I was back then, Mm -hmm. because it really hurt for my family. For sure. Yeah. You talk in your book about how, in the one hand, you were loose. I mean, you were having to sell your stuff for very cheap, but you were also looking at the buyers and you were thinking, what great buys these people are getting and yeah. how good it must, it must feel to be on the other side when, yeah. when the economy does collapse, yeah. right? So, yeah. And that's I've been, like I said, I've been preparing for this time for a while. So I'm actually looking at deals right now. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at opportunities that get in front of me that are very distressed or upside down for some people. And there's a deal in Fort Worth that we're, that David and I are buying and our company, and we're, we're probably going to pay cash for it. You know, it's 170 units. It's way below value. It's an opportunity we can't really pass up. So we're going to go for it. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. And are you also going to raise the equity there from investors? Yes, though so that one we I think we may have raised all the equity already on that deal. Okay, and there's a lot of bridge lenders that are not lending right now. But you know, if you get a thirty or forty percent leverage, everybody's lending. You know, so mm-hmm. you know the the really smart ones that that can get in with low leverage are still doing deals. So, so uh, it's a very tricky time. Very very yeah. tricky time. Yeah. So what I want to ask you is, how would one run across? opportunities in this time? Because we know that they're out there, but how do we come across them? You know, great, great question. I think right now it's going to come back to the relationships that you had with Mm -hmm. people in the industry. 
And I'll give you an example. A, a broker friend of mine called me and he's like, Glenn, this just hit my desk. These guys are upside down. They're bleeding. The lender is going to foreclose on them in about 30 days. And he paid $60,000 a door for this opportunity. And he's going to dump it for $40,000 a door for, you know, 200 plus units. So I'm like, okay, give me two weeks, three weeks. And I'm going to see if I can raise all the money to close that deal in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And um, you think about that. If somebody paid 65000 a door for it, and it was a good deal then. If I get it for forty, when the economy stabilizes, it's probably going to be worth seventy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just do the math. You know, thirty thousand dollar profit on a couple hundred units—that's a lot of money. So, mm-hmm. going to make six million dollar profit on that thing, or plus. You know. Yeah, yeah. And going back to your answer, it goes back to the real estate hustle that I hadn't heard that term before, but I read in your book, and I—you called it—it's the making phone calls and shaking hands. That, yeah. That's what it is, and that's how a lot of the opportunities are found in this business. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people want to jump into this business right away, Jorge, and, and, and really make a lot of money. But, you know, they see a lot of propaganda on the Internet and commercials and get rich and do cash flow and all this other stuff. But it's actually a lot of work and takes a lot of time. You know, if you remember that relationship to do my very first deal, it's because I was donating my time to the Apartment Association and I had developed a relationship with my friend John. And we knew each other well enough where I could go to him and ask for his personal advice and opinion. Well, that relationship took a long time to build, to get to that mm-hmm. level of friendship. And he, he liked me. He could have sold that property to anybody he wanted to and probably for more money. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to help me get started because he liked me. And then the friend Ed that I put that deal in front of on that discounted note, he later, 10 year, a decade later, sold me eight apartment complexes because we had a good working relationship. Mm-hmm. And same thing now, brokers are calling me to say, Glenn, you're the first one I thought of. I think this has got your name written all over it, you know, because I know you could fix all this stuff. So relationships, Jorge, you know, it just takes time, development. For a lot of people that want to get into it, they just need to partner on a small level with somebody like me or another sponsor that's done a lot. If they find Mm -hmm. deals, but they they may be too intimidated to go buy 100 or 200 units. You know, they could just say, I found this great deal. I know it's a good deal. Glenn, do you want to partner with me on it? I'd be like, yeah, sure. Let's take a look at it. You know, mm-hmm. so once you do one or two of them, then it'll be a lot easier to do one all on your own someday. Mm-hmm. But I would suggest somebody find mentors and somebody find people that they can learn from, learn the business from, because there's a lot to go into it between the legal stuff and the title work, renovation a numbers, lot, a lot, property condition reports. I mean, all those things, it gets overwhelming. So. Mm-hmm. But that's that's something that I really liked about your book is how you describe it very clearly, how you went through the journey. And it was a journey of step by step. And it was a journey of many years and of many lessons. But ultimately, you learned the industry from the inside out, right, from the property management. And that's how you were able to now identify deals and bring the value that you bring to a development. Yeah. Do you remember my first chapter, Jorge? It's a, It's the value of you. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. start off the book is like, no matter what industry you're in, if you become just a master at your craft and you're really good at what you do, you've got a lot to contribute, not just to business, not to, but to life and to other individuals. But if you're good at it, you know, you're valuable. You are valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of dive into that right at the very beginning because people don't think they have a lot to contribute, but they really do. Yeah, and no, I, I really appreciate that, Glenn. Are you yeah. ready, Glenn, for a quick fire round where we ask you some quick questions? Let's do it. Yeah, let's jump in. Awesome. What's your favorite book that we likely haven't heard of? 
Oh, you probably heard of Who Moved the Cheese? Have you heard yeah, of that yeah. But tell us about it's it. Good. It's a really good one. Yeah. That's a really good one because it's just about change all the time. And I think the world's constantly changing around us. And it's a fun read. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another book. one that I read that's called Zap. I forgot the author, but it's called Zap. Z-A-P-P. Okay. And it talks about how to empower the people around you. Power of okay. empowerment. It's pretty and, powerful. And the first one, just to clarify, it's Who Moved Your Cheese? Oh, yeah. Who Moved yeah. Your Cheese? <laughs> that's a good one. Right. Who's a person that you look up to the most in real estate? In real estate? Yeah. Uh, First, I was going to say the Lord, because <laughs> he owns more real estate in the whole world. He owns the whole world. Um, gosh, that's a great question. I do have a couple of really big mentors. You know, John was my first mentor and actually got me going. And then I have um, since really valued um, what I learned from all of the brokers in the industry. Okay. I get to be friends and they teach me so much. I can ask dumb questions to my broker friends and they don't judge me. They'll just like, hey. I'll, they'll explain stuff that didn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. What's, Glenn, a, a parting piece of advice that you would like to give our audience? I would like to suggest that you just do the right thing. Do the right thing. And if you, can I share an experience that I had? Of course. Hey? Of course, I'd love to. You might have read it. It's in the uh, afterword on my book. And it was written by a broker, Al Silva, actually. He, he wrote it. But he had brokered a deal. I was selling an apartment complex and a buyer was buying it. And right in the middle of the transaction, about a week before it was supposed to close, the chiller completely died. You know, the chiller provides all of the, you know, heating and air conditioning and stuff. And they're big pieces of equipment and very expensive. And it died. And I could have done one of two things. I could have just put a Band-Aid on it and tried to temporarily fix it because he was already past his due diligence. You know, the buyer, mm-hmm. he, he was already ready to close. And I wanted to just replace it and get him a new one. And my business partner at the time, he was not keen on that idea. He's like, I don't know. The guys can't come back. He can't back out. Just put a Band-Aid on, fix it. It just doesn't feel right to me. So I I, I called the broker and I said, you know what? I'm going to buy this guy a new chiller. I'll put 50% down now. I'll order it. I'll put the other 50% in an escrow account at closing. So he has the money to pay for it after closing because there's no way it could have got fixed before closing. Mm-hmm. So I offered that and, and he could not believe, the buyer could not believe that I would do that right before closing to spend that kind of money to, mm-hmm. to buy something for somebody else. And then just fast forward, I was at a conference and I was sitting in a group of about 20 people and they were all going around introducing themselves, Jorge. And some guy across from me, you know, it was his turn to stand up and introduce himself. And he said, I don't want to introduce myself. He's like, my name's Tim. I want to introduce that guy over there. And then I looked up, he's pointing at me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. do I know this dude? <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't recognize him. He's like, I want to tell you about that guy. And then he said, I was getting ready to buy a deal. My chiller broke or his chiller broke. And he bought me a new one right before closing. And he's like, who wow. does that? Other than that guy sitting right there. I'm sitting in the same room with him. Can you imagine what that conversation would have been like had I sold him a broken chiller? Mm-hmm. right before closing. So wow. I think in this industry, if we just take the time to do the right thing, mm-hmm. it'll pay dividends over time. And that's what I would suggest your listeners to just do the right thing. That's a, that's a phenomenal piece of advice. Glenn. Thank you for <laughs> it. And, and yeah, I did read that in your book as well as other great stories. It's, it's pretty moving. You have some pretty moving stories in there as well. Yeah. 
Thank it's, you. There were some that brought some people to tears and yeah. some people laughed at my, at my mistakes that I made in life, you know, so <laughs> it should be a fun read. It's on Amazon. Anybody can go onto Amazon and just type in maintenance man, a millionaire, or they could type my name, Glenn Gonzalez, it'll pop up. And, and if I ever come across any of your listeners, I'll even sign the book for them. <laughs> so, Perfect. So, so proud of it. It's kind of cool. Perfect. Yeah, I, I highly, again, highly recommend it to, to anyone to get it on Amazon from maintenance man to millionaire. Glenn, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. How can people get to know more about you other than buying the book? They want to reach out with some questions. Thank you, Jorge. It's Glenn with two N's at obsidiancapitalco.com. And people can email me directly and I'll be more than happy to respond. And thank you for having me on your show. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Glenn. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>